This morning we're going to be in Habakkuk 3. And in chapter 2, Habakkuk sits back. He waits for the Lord. He waits for the Lord's understanding. There's this, this ominous, uh, ubiquitous Babylonian assault that's going to take place on God's people in Judah. And God allowed this situation to occur because of the disobedience and the ungodliness of the Judahites. So in chapter 1, Habakkuk is really floored by this. He's upset. He's, he can't understand it. And I love Habakkuk because he's real. What if the whole Bible was filled with per- perfect people, men and women? Would we even be here? I know I would be way too intimidated to come to the Lord because I'd say, listen, I knew my flaws coming to the Lord. So even God's prophets, even his men and women that he used, struggled. They had difficulties. All right? In chapter 3, I told you, be patient because this is the best chapter where Habakkuk now praises what's going on and praises the Lord's decision, praises God. But what's changed? The Lord's decision hasn't changed. His plan hasn't changed. But Habakkuk has changed. Actually, the title of today's message is, we, He doesn't change, but we do. Or we change, not him. I had it backwards. <laughs> I knew that was wrong. So we're going to go through this and we're going to look and see this progression that Habakkuk makes. So let's jump in. Habakkuk 3, verse 1, it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Those two verses pack quite a punch. Habakkuk's prayer is on Shigianoth. What's Shigianoth? Well, basically, it's a musical term. It's a, a dithyram, so to speak. It's a type of hymn. Basically, he's praising God and he's setting it to music, much like the Psalms. Middle Eastern people back then were very expressive and still are today, and they would praise God and they would come up with these psalms of, of praise and they would set it to music and they would sing it. And a lot of our songs are based on some of these psalms. But what does this tell us? It tells us that in each successive chapter in Habakkuk, Habakkuk's changing. Well, the first one, we could say certainly he had a poor attitude. In chapter 2, maybe we can uh, characterize that as reluctant acceptance. And in chapter 3, praise, praise. Romans 10.17 tells us that God's word is regenerative. The more that Habakkuk hears the Lord, the more that he prays and interacts with the Lord, the more that he understands the Lord's plan, his spirit is being regenerated. That's very powerful. Romans is packed with a lot of really neat doctrinal statements. We learn about ourselves. We know we're doing it. We see it in our loved ones. But now here's we need the Bible to explain to us what's actually going on inside. Oh, wow, now I can put my finger on it. That makes sense. But seriously, how many here, if you've been a Christian more than one or two years, have been completely excited and thrilled with every decision that the Lord's ever made in your life? Every decision. Well, I don't see any hands going up. Oh, if you're young, that's, that's an awesome thing. Um, enjoy your childhood, is all I can say. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. And I'll tell you that, on a serious note, maybe some of you came here this morning and were considering going to the beach. You just wanted to be by yourself, you know, going out and golfing or something or just hanging out and getting a suntan. 
Maybe you came in here a little bummed, a little depressed. Well, I think that you're really going to be blessed by this morning's message because it's going to speak to your heart. It's going to speak about what's going on and the turmoil that you're going through in your heart. What's really cool is no pastor has the ability to look past your frontal lobe and find out what the issues are in your life. God knows, though, and you know. And those are the only two that need to know. So let them work in your life. Keep moving. Don't give up. It's always too early to give up. But I love, too, Habakkuk's honesty. He says, some of the things he says here, he was afraid, he was terrified, he was horrified at God's plan. And he's a prophet of God. And he struggles with this. But I love the honesty here. And the truth is, we need to be honest, too. What's the sense? When we go to prayer, you know, as, as if we're talking to God like he doesn't know what's going on in our life. I've had these discussions with the Lord. Well, Lord, I really messed that one up. I just pray for mercy in this situation. I really blew it. I don't know how I can recover from this one. Just be honest. Lord, I was prideful in that situation. Lord, my heart hasn't been right this week. Lord, I haven't been in the spirit. I haven't been a good example to my children this week. Honesty. It's what the Lord loves. And Habakkuk had that. But he says, in the end, I'm going to trust you. Do your will. Let it be known. Let it get out there. I'm in a good place now, Lord. It took me a while to get there. We didn't know how long it took him to get there. But he finally got there. Respectfully, though, I have one request, if I'm paraphrasing him. In the midst of your judgment, I know we have to be disciplined. I know this is a bad place. I know we're sinning like mad and we've completely forgotten you. But can you temper it with mercy? Now, that is something certainly God could honor because God is the God of mercy. And I love that about him. What is it that you've done in your life? What is it that you're carrying? What guilt are you uh, holding on to like a pack on your back and it's, 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 it's just holding you down and it's herniating your spiritual discs? Well, take it off. Because God is a God of mercy. He loves to show his mercy on sinners. He loves to show his grace. That's why he sent his son to the cross. So just keep that in mind. Prosperity Gospel teaches that I pray in faith until God accepts my will. We're little gods out there. However, the Bible, biblical Christianity teaches that I pray in faith until God can change my heart so that I can accept his will. Especially when his will is difficult. You see the difference? We're not here to change God. Imagine if God answered all of my prayers. I would be in a really bad place right now. Oh, Lord, this is a good one. This is going to, me and you, we're going to be thick as thieves on this one. Please. I look back in hindsight and say, oh, so glad he didn't answer that prayer. That would have been a disaster. Right? So this is what we have here. And listen, this morning, I'm, I'm not here to give you fluff. This book is not a fluffy book. This is reality. If you're being preached at fluff, from the pulpit and every day you're walking on air and you leave this place then you're not going to be able to handle nor am I the things that life throws at us this is real right if you're going through difficulty right now get with the Lord after service just between you and him and, and work it out say you know what I want to be where Habakkuk was in the third chapter because right now I'm in the first chapter okay three God came from Teman the Holy One from Mount Paran Selah his glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand, and there, was, and there his power was hidden. 
What do we see here? This is the glory of the person of God. This is what helps Habakkuk praise in the midst of storms. And let me share a little secret with you. When you're going through difficulties, when you're really struggling, when we meditate on the goodness of God and the glory of his person, it helps us. You know, Pastor Paul's been going through the Psalms on Wednesday night. And there's a lot in the Psalms. Actually, my son, uh, as he was growing up, his favorite book was the book of the Psalms. He just loved to read the Psalms. So I would encourage you, even if you can't come out on a Wednesday night, to get a free download from the Internet on the website. I remember uh, a story about a, a Christian who was looking out at the world and, and he was seeing things and he was distraught, uh, things going on in our country, things going on in the world, and you know, just kind of depressed at how uh, it didn't seem like the world was, was turning for the good, it was turning for the worse. Well, that's what the Bible says. Actually, I saw a quote that I enjoyed. It says, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm too busy focused on Christ. That's a good one. Listen, society may be crumbling all around us. And we can say that with a smile. Because we know that the Lord has it all under control. And it has to crumble so that his kingdom can come. And his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The carnal focus is always saying, Lord, change my circumstances. But the mature, the mature attitude is saying, Lord, change my heart in the midst of these circumstances. Verse 3. He speaks of a swath of land covering Teman, or what we would know as Edom, to Mount Paran, or the Sinai Peninsula. And this swath was really indicating the travels of the children of Israel and God's goodness and his provisions through this journey. The words like brightness, light, and rays are used here. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1.5 that God is light. He elucidates all things. Physically, he's given us the sun. He's given us these organs, these, these eyes, and he gives us two of them to see in stereo. Beautiful depth perception. Wake up in the morning and the, the sun is out and the flowers are blooming. So, you know, that's a, it's just a created star, but it's kind of neat. We, we really enjoy the sun. We enjoy the light that it gives us. But God is light in all things. He gave us the physical sun. He also elucidates things mentally and also spiritually. Now, this is where we're going to come to a bifurcation of the scripture. We're going to, we're going to split here. Because if you listen to different schools of biblical thought, and, and I'm going to cover this, some look at this as, well, this is the, the provisions of, it's obvious, that God's provisions in the past for his people. Uh, and then others look at this in the second coming or in judgment. And we're going to go through those two, those two veins, but I'm going to submit to you that they really have more in common than they not have in common. If you look at Matthew 24:27, it says, As the lightning flashes from the east to the west so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So when he comes in that second coming, it will be with great light, with great brightness. And I can see where they get that in the, in the Scripture. In Isaiah 63, from Teman, or from uh, you know, that area, that Basra area, Isaiah 63, the Lord comes after his you know, return in judgment, and his, his robes are dyed with blood. Uh, and he's... And, that's an incredible portion of scripture as well. So they see that in his second coming. Now I'm going to read verse 5. 
It says, Before him went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses? Your chariots of salvation, your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. Selah. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters. There's a lot there. But basically, we can kind of categorize this and sum it up as we looked at the glory of the person of the Lord. Here, we look at the power or the works of God revealed, a God who can do anything. Now, for this, we really have to open our minds in an aggregate sense when we look at when we try to explain an infinite God with our finite minds, and we'll try to do that here. But basically, imminent dread is coming upon the nations, and Habakkuk's ha- Habakkuk has his focus in the right place. He needed to hold on to something stable through the storms of life and through the storms that were coming upon the nation. You know, you ever see those videos of uh, maybe a peaceful uh, town and, you know, it's Main Street or whatever, and then this, these hurricanes and these floods come, and they're just so common now. And then all of a sudden, you see in, on some of these videos, the, the whole street is covered, you know, street signs all the way up to stop. You know, the water is that high. And the authorities come in these boats to try to find uh, and to rescue others. And I've seen this, you know, you see the wind and everything's blowing and there's a family, one or two or a few people in the tree and they're holding on to those bows for dear life and the motorboats come up and they, they help to bring them to safety. But, you know, when you're going through storms of life, you don't want to hold on to something flimsy. You don't want to have wishful thinking. You don't want to do self-talk, something that's not work going to work because when dire circumstances hit that bubble is going to burst and then where will we be we'll be taken down the current we need to be anchored in those those trees that go down deep into the ground that you know the 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 diameter of the trunk is is so great that you can hold on to that thing through all those storms and once it's finally abated you can still be on that holding on to that tree because it's something solid this is the same thing with the lord and, and we have problems in life, and I don't want to minimize it, but Habakkuk's problems were big, big, an invading army. Think about that in the United States. Just coming down and destroying everything, you know, knocking out our electrical system, um, killing our, our young men and our dads and our uncles. And this is what was going on. 
So he needed to find something solid, and so do we, with our little problems and our big problems. That's why God is often described as the rock. Rocks don't move. Those big fortresses, those huge rocks, that's what God is, and that's where we need to run to when we're in times of difficulties. And our, our, our country is probably going to go through some worse things. If you look at the economic forecasters, they're predicting another bubble, another economic bubble. So what do you put your money in? Gold, silver, um, a foreign currency? Everything is so unsure these days. And if we focus on the circumstances, we're going to be depressed. We're going to be going to the doctor with acute or chronic depression. We need to focus on the Lord. Because when we really focused on the Lord, then we can look at all the piddling that man is doing, and it doesn't mean anything. We know where our focus is. Now, two schools of thoughts here. Um, and it's, I'm just going to throw out the name of two men that I listen to and I respect their theology. Chuck Smith looks at this, and he sees the deliverance of God. He sees, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up. It's, it's, I have it reversed. Chuck Smith looks at this and sees the second coming. He sees the tribulation. And we're going to make a point for that. Um, Warren Wiersbe looks at this and he sees God's past, his deliverance, his always this pattern that he delivers his people, that he never lets them be completely destroyed. But let me submit to you that I think they're both right. Again, what are we trying to do? With our finite minds, we're trying to understand an infinite God. Hard thing to do. So he pulls out all the stops. Let's talk about the deliverance from Egypt. Let's talk about the Great Tribulation. Let's talk about America's future. Let's talk about all these things with the Babylonian incursion sandwiched in between those two, right? God sees the, the whole timeline of human history in one snapshot. So we have to open up our minds in a sense as we look through this. Now, God has and will use for judgment... Some of the things mentioned here. We read about pestilence. We read about plague. The seas and the rivers. What comes to mind? The ten plagues, right, in Egypt. And the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt. That comes to mind. We look at the sun and the moon and the heavenly bodies at his disposal. Disposal. And Joshua said, Lord, I, I, need, I need more time in the day. Oh, don't we all say that? You know, we, have a, we look at our itinerary, and then we look at our watches and go, I'm not going to make it today. Well, Joshua was fighting a very crucial battle and said, Lord, I need more time. Well, we can talk about whether he wobbled the earth in the other direction, 23 degrees on the other side or whatever, but he had more hours in the day to finish this crucial battle. So God can manipulate this the constellation if he so desires to do that. We read about earthquakes, judgment, and armies. Armies, both temporal and spiritual. Check this out. I can't wait. I'm actually in 2 Samuel. I'm really excited to go through Kings, 1 and 2 Kings. In 2 Kings 6, now let's check this out. God has used armies to win or to chastise physical armies. God has also used spiritual armies. How many of you remember in 2 Kings 6, Elisha the prophet and his protege, and the Syrians were bearing down heavy on them, and it was only the two of them, maybe a few servants. And the, the guy, the servant, is like, oh, we're in trouble. And uh, Elisha says, he prays, Lord, open his eyes. to you know, Let him see what, what you see. Let him see what's really real. You know, we look at the temporal world and we say, this is, that's wood. I know that's wood, right? If I fall on the ground underneath that carpet is concrete, that's going to hurt. 
You realize how much space is in between those atoms? Is this really real? What's really real is God's world. So he prays, and God opens up the eyes of the young protege, and he sees the Syrian army bearing down. But behind the Syrian army, he sees chariots of fire. He sees a spiritual army. And you can wonder why Elisha could just sit there like, I'm not worried. Isn't that amazing? I love, the, I love Elisha. He was so confident. He was so confident in his God. And he, and he said, Lord, strike them with blindness. And they were struck with blindness. And then after that, they were shown mercy by the Israelites. So God is, could do whatever he wants. Physical army, spiritual army, anything at his disposal. And we see that reflected in these scriptures. In verse 6, it says that he measured the earth. Measuring in the scripture can be an indication of ownership and or judgment. So, God owns everything. And we've seen the book of Revelation in our near future that cataclysmic events will follow this. We, when we read this, we find God's deliverance of his people. That's his pattern. That's his MO. But we also find that he protected the messianic line. That was very important. Some say, well, it seemed like God was so active back then. Well, what's he doing today? Well, I don't see any Red Seas opening up, and I don't see this, and I don't see that. First of all, let me just say this to you. Be careful what you ask for. Because when you read Revelation, that's all going to happen. And I hope that everyone in this room has given their hearts to the Lord because you don't want to be here when all that stuff starts happening around you. Oh, sorry, Lord, I, I didn't mean that. I mean, that's a Pandora's box that you can't close. What is the Lord doing now? What's the Lord doing? We live in the age of grace. We live in the dispensation of grace and the Holy Spirit. So back when the Father in the Old Testament, he'd seemed like he was so prominent. What is he doing now? Through his Holy Spirit, he's saving souls. And again, just like Elisha's armies, you can't see it. But every day, thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people all around the world are being saved and ushered into the kingdom. Again, invisible to the naked eye. What's the Lord doing? The Holy Spirit's not looking for a lot of fanfare. He does it under the radar. Salvation of souls. He's setting everything up. He's showing grace to the wicked. You see stuff on TV. Well, they, they get away with everything, these people. You know, look what's going on in the world. He's showing grace. They must repent before they die. Otherwise, they'll stand in judgment. But this is the age we live in. Grace and the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. So that's what's going on. Now, if you study civilizations, as we, as we look at some of this as well, um, you know, Egypt is in here, Taman is in here, Cushion is in here, a lot of these different nations, and these civilizations went through uh, ebbs and flows. And I'll just make it easy for the sake of instruction. I'll use the word D. The first word can be despair. Nations can go through difficult times. Right? You, you study history long enough, European, Israeli, whatever, you'll see this cycle, despair. Um, if they are blessed, they learn to prosper, then they rise from despair to dominance. Now what always seems to happen, bar none, after dominance for a while, the Greeks, the Romans, the United States, debauchery, that's next. So much excess, so much um, unthankfulness. I want more, we want more. 
And from de debauchery, usually we end up with demise. So there's the cycle that's going on with these nations. Unfortunately, in the United States, I think we're on debauchery and possibly headed toward demise, depending on how you look at things. Verse 8. O oh Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea? The waters are used a lot, right? Um, God is big into using water, the universal solvent. It can accomplish many things. Uh, in the great flood, it changed the face of the earth uh, permanently. Uh, the Nile, the Red Sea were used for God's purposes. Was he displeased? No. He used the waterways for his purposes. If you read Revelation, and I made the, the, the correlation, the connection when we covered this, um, you can see a lot of the, um, you know, some of the plagues and the judgments back in Egypt really kind of done again here in, in the book of Revelation. But Midian, which is really towards the Arabian Peninsula, and Kushan, which is uh, mostly towards North Africa. Now, these were nations in between the trek from Egypt to the Promised Land. However, however, looking at both schools of thoughts biblically, we also know that they're end-time players. These nations are end-time players. Look at North Africa and the change of governments, right? From dictators, and some of them were brutal, uh, to rebellious people rising up, unfortunately connected with Al-Qaeda and some of these other groups, and we're starting to see that they're becoming unwieldy. Now, Ezekiel 38 and 39, this plays right into this whole idea of the nations lining up again and surrounding Israel. So they were players back in biblical times, but they're players back again in our near future. The Arabian Peninsula, right? Was it Omar, Qatan, uh, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia? They're all in that peninsula. You don't think that they're a player in end times prophecy? They certainly are. Um, it's spoken of again in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So this is fascinating how so many veins we can read God's word and say, oh, it's definitely that. And then another guy says, no, I'm, I'm a man of God. I prayed. It's definitely that. And you can say, well, I can see how it could be both of those things. See, you know what happens with mankind? We never learn. World War II, so many things happen, and we don't learn. You know, you see some things happening again. Uh, was the, the phrase that goes, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. What, what civilization hasn't repeated all the mistakes of their predecessors? Oh, we're going to do it better this time. Really? Are we doing it better? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Is Europe doing it better? The, the so-called leaders of the world, so-called? And, and, and it happens with people, too. We should learn from the mistakes of our predecessors. predecessors. So, verse 12. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. Indignation uh, often was used in the Old Testament. Uh, it spoke of God's fury and wrath, often indicative of the Lord's second coming. Uh, so we can see the tribulation connected to that just before that. The nations are who? The heathen. Now this gets interesting because... If you take a strict interpretation that this has to do with the, uh, the Babylonian incursion, God is furious not with his people. He's furious with the nations, the ones that have rejected him. So this can't be referring to the imminent ubiquitous assault from Babylon to Judah. It must mean something else. 
Now, I certainly would look at this and say that it's a great proof text for the pre-trib rapture. Has God ever destroyed the righteous with the wicked? Never. Not in Lot. I mean, not in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. Not in Egypt. Not in Jericho. Right? As we look through this, not in the flood. Never. So when the rapture comes and the Lord takes his people home, that's when his fury and his indignation will be poured out on a world ripe for judgment. Pre-trib rapture is all over this. Verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. Chariots of salvation. God often saved his people from destruction. Uh, he preserved them when much of the world, uh, look in the Persian Empire, um, Esther, the book of Esther, when they wanted to destroy the Jews, it, the decree was out there. It was ready to go down. All the equipment was ready. And God interrupted it. Even in the Holocaust, you know, things were looking pretty bad there in, in the 40s. Uh, but the Lord stopped that as well. So Habakkuk, I believe, as he's writing this, um, didn't understand the full picture of salvation. Again, just looking generally, Lord, you're going to destroy your people? No, this is for discipline. I'm going to preserve them. And those that are doing the chastising, I will discipline them for their wicked and evil. But I won't destroy them. What Habakkuk didn't see was the salvation of the Lord in Jesus Christ. It's great to save somebody's physical body from death. That's a wonderful thing. Jesus raised Lazarus, but Lazarus died again. How do I know? Because if, he, if Lazarus was still around, he'd be doing the talk show circuits. <laughs> Lazarus is dead, okay? He was dead, he was risen, and he died again. So it's great to resurrect the body. That's pretty impressive. But what's better and more beneficial is what happens in eternity, what happens to the soul, what happens to the spirit. So... God was working a work that the Jews could look forward to in their future. It wasn't just the cycle of deliverance of the nation and individuals. He was going to deliver them permanently. When they died, they would be with him for eternity. No barring between a holy God and his creation and his people. I look forward to that as well. Again, looking at eschatology, and that's just a fancy word for the study of end times, there is a clear delineation between salvation and judgment, and it's based on faith in him. Faith in him. And oftentimes, you know, we, we pray for our loved ones, we pray for people that we meet on the street, strangers, we want everybody to be saved. What is the hindrance to any person being saved? Is it God? No. Does God put out obstacles to salvation? No. The Bible is clear. He wants all to be saved, all to come to the knowledge of him. It's very clear, repeated many times. Oftentimes, the hindrance of a person coming to salvation is their own stubbornness. I was blessed. Um, my, my wife and I went to, uh, we went to Pennsylvania and looked at some garden stuff, and she got me into it. Uh, but I love it now. I can name different hibiscus, hydrangea. I can tell you the difference. But it's cool. I'm really secure in that. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> that's not the point of the story. <laughs> so we go, and there's this concert 
that's happening at the time. And I'm looking at the guy who's singing, and I said to Heather, I know him. I know his face. I think I went to college with him. Yes, I did. As he's singing, I'm trying to make eye contact with him, not messing up his singing or anything, but when he was done singing, I went over him. Surely, certainly he was a guy I went to college with. He was a Christian. I was not. I was anything but a Christian. And we got into a great discussion, and he saw my shirt. It had the Calvary insignia, and he, was, he gave me a hug. He goes, you're a believer? I'm like, yeah. Why didn't you witness to me harder when I was in college? <laughs> I could have saved myself so much trouble and years of pain and anguish. So we hugged. We actually had a great discussion. I mean, what are the odds you run into somebody like that? Who was the obstacle to my salvation all those years? Thank you. <laughs> Did I ask anybody to call out? <laughs> but the bottom line is that I remember going to these small Bible studies in college. I, I, I wanted it. It was an attraction to me. It's something deep inside. But my lifestyle in college was, and it was the antithesis. And I kind of walked this back and forth for a while and then went back into the world again. But I never forgot the Christians on campus. I never forgot the people that witnessed to me. The, and, you know, I'm going back 20-something years into college. And I just got, it was like a time warp that I went into. And Heather and I had this awesome conversation driving home. But the biggest obstacle to salvation is us. Period. Period. Well, I prayed once and God didn't listen and he didn't do what I asked him. So I'm done with Christianity. Really, is that your devotion level to your relationships or your job? You'd be unemployed and single for the rest of your life. Why do we give such little bit of uh, devotion and commitment to the Lord? It should be more than that. So, I know we're talking about judgment, but I want to temper it with, nobody has to go through judgment. All those people that go in judgment, go there willingly. They just don't want God. And that's their choice. Going back to just really another quick topic on eschatology, there's a belief out there, and it's, believe it or not, it's espoused by some Christian groups that, God is going to judge the believers with the unbelievers in these times of revelation. Uh, we believe in the pre-trib rapture, before the wrath of God, that he's going to remove his believers, like he did in the flood, like he did in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, like he did in Jericho, and on and on. Why would God change his MO now? The Bible says he doesn't change. And you know what? Any of those groups, and they can be studying the Bible for a long time. If you go on some of their websites, they can't get through a study of revelation because if you're not understanding that we're removed pre-wrath, it throws off your whole end times prophecies. And these are people that have been Christians longer than I've been alive. And they can't get through the book. They can't do a study on Revelation because their, their, their doctrine is off. For some of you, it's like, what are you talking about? But, you know, for those of you that are more advanced, you understand what I'm saying. Verse 16, and I could prove it to you too. I'll show it to you. Verse 16, when I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones. Very expressive. I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. These last four verses before the end are just so awesome. Verse 16. I love the conclusion that he comes to. He is on what we would call sensory overload. He's on overstim. A.W. Tozer said this, and let me read it and try to explain it because it's deep. 
A.W. Tozer said, to know God at once or at the same time is both the easiest and the most difficult thing in the world. How could that be? Because he's God. Because he's infinite and we're finite. A lot of these groups that try to make God relatable, caution. Be careful with that. He is relatable. He loves us. He was gonna, probably going to be so close to him in heaven. It's going to be awesome. Our sin separates us from him, but that's not going to be the case when we're in his presence. Be careful about making God too relatable. He's not my bro. You know, he, He's not any of those things. He is my God. Daniel, book of Daniel, John in Revelation, um, Habakkuk, they were on overstimulation. They were in, introduced to some of his glory, even Moses, and they were wiped out. So to know God as a relationship is, is so wonderful, but it can be so difficult, especially when we're trying to walk that walk. We're trying to mature as believers, and he introduces things into our lives, and we pray for one thing, and he gives us that over there, and we can't stomach it. Oh, we love him so much, but Lord, it doesn't make any sense to me. Exactly. You've been a Christian long enough, you, you experience that. It's the most wonderful thing, and it can be the most difficult thing at the same time. What a ride. But they all came to the same conclusion, to rest in what God was doing in the midst of difficult circumstances. Habakkuk was going to rest in the day that the troops are going to invade. Now, he doesn't use the heathen anymore. He uses the people. We're back to Judah. We're back to the Babylonian incursion. Remember, don't get confused Prophecy is that way. God could be talking about something in the next second. He could be talking about something in the past. He could be talking about something 2,000 years in the future. That's how we know he's God. There is no other holy book. I've got a collection of them in my library at home. The Koran, the Book of Mormon, Jehovah Witness stuff. They can't make prophecy. It falls apart. The Bible is the only work that we can date back to thousands of years that are talking about things that are happening today and in our near future. So that's prophecy. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's wild. Um, so what do we have here? I, I think about Rahab too. Let me just throw that in there. Rahab was a prostitute, the walls of Jericho, and Rahab told the spies, we've heard about your God, we've heard about Yahweh. You know, most of the people don't care, but my family and I, we, we, we fear your God. We worship him. We know that he's delivered you. I mean, she was just this prostitute, a, a nobody in society. And all they had to do, get as many people in your apartment as possible, throw that red scarlet thread out the window, and when we see it, God's judgment is going to pass over your house. Even Rahab. Probably the people in Jericho said, why is she being protected? She's just a prostitute. Think about that word. Think about what prostitutes do. God saved her and everyone in her household who worshipped the God of the Israelites. Don't let anything stop you from salvation. And I find a lot of times in my travels, not all the times, but those that have been through the ringer in life and come to Christ, they never let him go. They're so appreciated. Jesus said, for who has been forgiven much loves much starting with the Lord. Keep that in mind. 17 through 18. Now the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor 
Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk is expressing what probably the surrounding countryside is going to look like after the locusts, the Babylonians come, take what's not theirs, destroy just for the fun of it, take the livestock, leave the people hungry. He, this is his picture of what his country is going to look like. Something so horrible, but he rejoices in the Lord. What causes us to rejoice in the Lord? Winning the lottery? You know, having somebody knock on your door with that big check and say, you just won a million dollars. What else? A, a, a good re relationship, an abatement of a social situation, an emotional Christian experience. Oh, I'm, I'm floating on air. It's so emotional for me. Habakkuk was in the midst of these horrible things that were going to happen, but he rejoiced in the Lord. Two, I will joy in the God of my salvation. Again, what do we find joy in in our lives? Think about it. Think about in your mind, what, what gives, what, how do I find joy? Oh, this was really great. This was, this was the best memory. Now ask yourself what you just thought of. Is that fleeting? Does it have any eternal spiritual ramifications? Because if it's not, it leads to instability in times of difficulty. Right? The God of my salvation. Again, Habakkuk might have thought, well, gee, all these things are going to happen. All these people are going to lose their, lose their lives. Maybe I'm going to die too. But he rejoiced. He had joy in the God of his salvation because if the Babylonians killed him, then once he was dead, they couldn't do anything to him anymore. But he knew that God was the God of his salvation. And even though, see, we look at this in light of Jesus Christ. Oh, everything makes sense in the light of Jesus Christ. But he didn't have that. This was the beauty of the prophets and, the, and the, the inkling that God gave them into the spiritual realm. And very impressive. He knew there was something greater, even though these horrible things were going to happen. To us, it makes sense. To him, it shouldn't have. But he still rejoiced and joyed in the God of his salvation. 19. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. To the chief musician with my stringed instruments. The book ends on a high note. The Lord God is my strength, not my physical body, not my weaponry, not my army, not my money, not my retirement, not my political connections, not my education, but the Lord God. And he will strengthen me and empower me to overcome in the midst of life's unpalatable circumstances. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. King David said something similar in 2 Samuel 22.3. This keeps getting repeated. 22.23. He says, he makes my feet like feet of deer and sets me on my high places. Echoed in Psalm 18. Similarities found in Deuteronomy 32 and 33. And there was a book written about this. It was an allegorical book. It's a great book. Very interesting about the Christian journey. See, this is allegorical, but it also gives a strong picture. Why? Animals were often used. Eagles, the soaring eagle. Imagine being an eagle, just flying around, catching the winds, you know, soaring, being able to pick out your prey, you know, to a, a grain of sand and snatch them up. 
Bible speaks about wings of eagles. Deer. What about deer? Probably he could envision uh, a craggy mountainside that it would take a man a long time to climb that thing with a cane. Hopefully, hopefully he didn't break his ankles. You ever watch a deer or a goat go up some of those, like it's nothing. I watch sometimes and I'm like, how do they not break their ankle? I've been in the woods before, you know? There's logs that are falling down, there's holes. How do they not break their ankles? Because God made them so incredibly agile. And a lot of times we as people, we, we're smarter than animals or we should be. But when we watch, look at the animal channel, we, we're like, wow, look at that lion. Look at, how the, look at that jaguar. Look how fast they are. Look at that eagle. We want to achieve those great heights in our lives. Okay? You ever watch a Polaris attack, a great white seal island? that They come up from the bottom, a 2,000-pound fish launches, grabs the seal, and completely ejects out of the water. How many people have seen that? Oh, you've got to go on to, you've got to search engine that. Great white shark Polaris attack. Unbelievable how they get out of the water. I mean, they're just amazing animals. Let's go back to the story here. <laughs> My wife's like, oh, don't watch that. He's killing that poor little Impala. But um, hey, baby, it's nature. You know, it's just the way it is. Let's just wrap this up. Why do we study this book, Pastor Joe, on a Sunday morning, written 2,600 years ago? Well, number one. In chapter one, Habakkuk started out with a very poor attitude. And God is so merciful, isn't he? You ever complain to God and stomp your feet and say, all the things we say to God, and he just, he's so patient with us. He had a poor attitude when God's plan was revealed to him. And maybe some of you this morning are Habakkuk in the first chapter. It's okay. When you leave here, just in your quiet time with the Lord, say, I want to get to chapter three, Lord. Chapter two. Habakkuk spends more time with the Lord. He's not so upset anymore. He is accepting it, maybe reluctantly though. But he's still unsettled about the situation. Maybe some of you this morning are in Habakkuk chapter 2. You're getting somewhere. We've all been through the chapters. Chapter 3. Habakkuk spends even more time with the Lord and listening to God. And he says at the end here, to the chief musician with my stringed instruments, not only is he accepting it, he's joying in what God is doing and he's setting this to praise. This is so great, I want to sing about it. And this is ultimately where we need to be. You see, if I just come up here and I say a few things to make you laugh and I wake you up on a Sunday morning and I say something to send you out there and you're going to have a great Sunday. If from this pulpit, that's all I'm doing, I'm doing you a great disservice. The truth is, what we need to do and we need to learn is how to live our lives, right? Amen? I want to know, Pastor Joe, what's the bottom line? I got a project due this week. I'm struggling with it. My wife and I aren't speaking. We haven't talked in three days. I'm struggling. My kids are driving me nuts. I can't take it anymore. I'm struggling. All right, see some smirks. We're getting there. The, the key is not to sit across from the Lord and arm wrestle him for dominance. Lord, change my circumstances. That's what I did as, as an immature believer it's before I was a Christian. I called out to him once in a while when I was really in trouble. 911, Lord, help me. And then when the situation passed, I was back to my old life again and back in the world. Do we want to do that as Christians? No. The real joy in life is when we can say, Lord, just like um, uh, King Hezekiah, when he opened up the letter, 
They're going to attack us. They say that you're no good, God. They say that they're going to destroy us like they did all the other gods in the area. Lord, here, it's your problem. Here, Lord, here's my finances. It's your problem. Lord, here are my kids. You love them more than I do. They're not walking right. Here you go. I'm putting this in front of you. Here, Lord, marriage is on the rocks. I need to put this before you. Here, Lord, work is driving me crazy. And for some of you, E, all of the above. Here, Lord, no longer do we arm wrestle him for dominance, but what we do is we ask him, Lord, you see what's going on. I need mercy. Habakkuk asked for that. Help me get through this. I'll leave you with this as we close this book. Habakkuk, his name meant one who clings. One who clings. And by the end of the book, he's clinging for dear life. He's not letting go of God. Maybe in prosperity, he might have, like we do, walked away a little bit. You know, things are going good, Lord. Thanks a lot. See ya. But Habakkuk clung to him. And that's why we can come to the conclusion we come to. That's what I want. I want not necessarily everything to go great for me. Because there's some people who have it all and are still miserable. No? Right? There's, I'm not going to go into detail, but they have it all. And they're still unhappy. There's still suicide. There's still drug use in those communities. We want something more than it. I personally want, through all these difficult situations, I want to be at peace. Happiness, you know, that's an ambiguous term. I want peace in my life. I want serenity. I want to be able to smile and say, you know, my Lord's got my back no matter what's going on. So as we close, I pray this morning that it isn't just Habakkuk who clings to the Lord. I pray that everyone in this room learns to cling a little bit closer to God and then I'll know I've done my job. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love your word. It's so beautiful. It's so merciful. It's so colorful. It's, you know, it just helps us live.